asked beforehand, if there's anyone who's never seen pornography, please come and speak with me. And in all of his events, he's never had one person come up to him and say, I've never seen pornography. Now, I only know two guys who have never seen pornography. And so whenever I talk with guys, I just assume they've seen it. Now, I think girls, there's, there's a, a lesser rate of women who, who haven't seen it, which, or a greater rate of women who haven't seen it, which is great. But that number is also growing with women as well. Um, so we need to be aware of that. So the question is, as pastors, leaders in the church, fathers, mothers, how do we address this issue? How do we address this issue? Well, the first thing we need to grasp is we need to expose the depravity and the destructiveness of pornography, how harmful it is. And this is where I think the church has um, failed. I'm not sure if pastors and churches truly know just how evil and harmful porn actually is. We know it's sinful, but we don't know how sinful it is. Communicating porn is sinful isn't enough. We need to communicate the sinfulness of it. Too many people don't understand the depravity of it due to simple, simple ignorance. They're consuming it, but not realizing the depravity of what they're consuming. And so, if you're a pastor here, I think we um, need to be committed to convincing our people of the depravity and harmfulness of it. Not just that it's wrong. It's not enough to get up in a Sunday morning sermon saying, porn is sinful. No, no, you need to give time to unpacking why it is so sinful. Now, we live in a, a moral relativism, right? That's our culture. Um, and moral relativism, relativism has greatly influenced our culture and even the church as a whole. And, um, and so, really, what moral relativism is all about is what's right for you is good and what's wrong for me is good. But it's more than just that. Ultimately, morality is determined by what is... Sorry, morality isn't determined by what is objectively good or evil... It's merely de determined based upon harm, okay? So as Christians, we believe God declares what is good and evil, objectively speaking. But in a moral relativistic culture, morality is determined based upon harm, how harmful it is. So for example, two men who love each other aren't harming anyone. Therefore, it's morally acceptable. But a person blowing up a crowd of people is evil because it's harmful. Humans understand that there are certain things that are harmful, and we live in a society that bases all of morality upon that reality and that, upon that function. So sex, everyone says, well, it's just between two people. They want to have a little bit of pleasure, and so it's not wrong. Why? Because they don't think it's harmful. That's the same logical argument when it comes to pornography. It's private. It's not harming anyone. And whether we like it or not, many Christians look at morality from this lens. It's not hurting anybody. What I do in the private room of my office, it's not hurting anyone. It's just a little, a little fancy, a little pleasure for me to consume. Now, we need to use this to our advantage in our culture. We need to use common grace in our culture. So how can we influence our culture when it comes to pornography? We'll show them how depraved it actually is, show them how harmful it actually is. Common grace is a beautiful thing, and it ought to be used. Now, not only that, um, 
we need to show the church, sorry, I'm losing my, my spot here. In speaking to a wider secular society, we need to use this to our advantage. Um, showing society and the church how, how harmful porn is, is essential in this, in this battle. One of the first things I noticed when I was speaking at the event in Ottawa, how porn fuels rape culture, um, whether or not people there agreed with our gospel presentation, because I gave a gospel message, and so it was coming from a Christian worldview, whether or not people agreed with that, they all agreed with heart, porn needs to be dealt with because they saw from the evidence that it's harmful. And so we need to use that in our advantage. Now, on top of that, we also need to challenge people's worldview, which is especially crucial, crucial in regards to the church. Um, Porn isn't merely evil because it's destructive. It's evil because God has declared it to be. And the evidence that God is right is that it is destructive. There's not a thing in the Bible that God declares evil that isn't destructive in its nature. Some things are destructive right away, like murder. But things like sex outside of marriage, it might not feel destructive at first, but over time, the depravity will begin to build, and it does become harmful, and porn has that same kind of nature to it. Too many Christians think porn isn't a big deal because it, is, it isn't hurting anyone, but it's a major deal because it's rebellion against God. And secondly, because the belief it doesn't hurt anyone is a lie. So just how destructive is it? How harmful is it? Well, one, we need to grasp this. When we talk to our people, when we talk to our kids, we need to tell our people that porn is destructive to the performers itself, both the men and the women in the porn industry. Dr. Mary Ann Layden, the Director of Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, notes, once the pornography actresses are in the industry, they have rates of substance abuse, typically alcohol and cocaine, depression, borderline personality disorder. The experience I find most common among the performers is that they have to be drunk, high, or disassociated in order to go to work. Their work environment is particularly toxic. The terrible work life of the pornography performer is often followed by an equally terrible home life. They have an increased risk of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, domestic violence, and have about 25% chance of making a marriage that lasts as long as three years. Tanya Burleson, formerly known as Jersey Jackson, said this, Guys are punching you in the face. You get ripped. Your insides can come out of you. It's never ending. You're viewed as an object, not as a human with a spirit. People do drugs because they can't deal with the way they're being treated. That's from a former porn star. Shelley Lubin, some of you may be familiar with her. She's the founder of the Pink Cross Foundation, and she reported this, that after analyzing top-selling pornographic content, 304 sex scenes were observed for, for both visible, for, sorry, both physical and verbal aggression. 88% of scenes contain physical aggression, gagging, slapping, choking, and etc. 49% of scenes contain verbal aggression, primarily name-calling. Now imagine a 10-year-old boy viewing this for the first time. On top of that, and I don't have time to unpack this, but porn fuels human trafficking. Back in the day, pornography was through magazines, but because of the internet, all you need is a room and a camera. And so women are being trafficked, and they're being forced to do films, and so they're actually 
so so by consuming pornography you're actually fueling human trafficking in fact there are many times where men are watching pornography and consuming it and they're actually watching rape and finding pleasure off of it see the porn industry preys on the vulnerable and our people the church needs to grasp that every time we click on pornography, we are praying, we are sexually cannibalizing human beings who are vulnerable, broken, and oppressed, and abused, and taken advantage of on a daily basis. So it's destructive to the performer. Not only that, porn is destructive to the individual viewer and society because it fuels rape culture. Now, I know rape culture is a controversial term, there are lots of Christians who don't like the term, but let's unpack it for a little bit. Jonathan Van Maren, he states that rape culture has a variety of definitions, but all of them include the same basic concept that rape culture can develop when prevalent attitudes and practices normalize, excuse, tolerate, and even condone rape. Examples of this are victim blaming, sexual objectification, and trivializing rape. Now, Porn defenders argue that there is no link between porn and sexual violence, but they never seem to bring up the fact that much of porn today is actually sexual violence. Think about this. If 88% of the most popular scenes contain violence, as well as verbal aggression, and the average age of a boy seeing porn is 11, what kind of impact do you think that will have on a child? Imagine a boy who has never held a girl's hand, He's never kissed a girl, yet he's watching films where women are being physically and verbally abused. What happens when he hits that age of 16 and 17 and a girl wants to sleep with him and all he knows about sex is that? John Woods works at Portman Clinic in England where he works as a psychotherapist and he wrote an article in 2012 about his patients. Listen to this. Jamie was 10 years old when he saw his first pornographic scene. During a sleepover, a classmate offered to show him some funny pictures on his laptop. At first, I found it a bit scary and a bit yucky, Jamie told me, as he shifted uncomfortably on his chair during our therapy session. I didn't know it was possible for people to do those sorts of things, and there were lots of nasty close-ups, but it gave me funny feelings, and the pictures started to stick in my head. For the next three years, while his parents assumed, parents don't ever assume, he was using his computer for his homework, Jamie visited porn websites for up to two hours a night. Even when his school performance began to suffer, they had no idea of the murky world their shy, quiet son was inhabiting while upstairs in his bedroom. While it's not his real name, Jamie is typical of the young men I meet. He explained, the websites led me to other websites, and soon I was looking at even weirder stuff I could never have imagined. Animals, children, stabbing and strangling. I stopped leaving my room and seeing my friends because when I was away from the pornography, I was dying to get back to see what else I could find. After identifying that someone in the house was accessing child porn, they took Jamie's laptop away for examination. Jamie is only 13, and he still hasn't even kissed a girl, let alone had sex. Though he is only a child himself, the result is that he has been put on the sex offender register, blighting his life for the foreseeable future. I also treat children who are so, fr so frustrated at being unable to live out their fantasies in everyday life and so confused by the message of endless sexual availability on the web that they have committed rapes or sexual assaults. 
Another case is Andrew, age 13, who was referred to the clinic because he has been abusing his five-year-old half-sister. Due to his two years of constant porn use, he has built up a complex fantasy world, so it was no big step for him to try to involve her. One of my regular patients, Jude, was referred to me at the age of 18 by, a social, by social workers who were concerned that years of web porn use had not only made him socially isolated, but a danger to others as well. When a girl he liked did not return his feelings, he told me, I feel like stabbing her. He also threatened to kill himself because he felt he would never be able to have a normal relationship and admitted he liked seeing women being hurt. A particular scenario he enjoyed thinking about was a man grabbing a woman's throat and punching her in the face. Now, all these cases are only the tip of the iceberg. For every young person who has come to the attention of police or social services, there will be tens of thousands more who manage to keep their habit under wraps, but who still face, who still face long-term consequences for their mental and emotional health. After all, we are rearing a guinea pig generation, a generation of boys and young men raised in a world where internet porn is freely on offer at any time. That's just a few stories. Jill Manning, a sociologist, states this, Research reveals many systematic effects of internet pornography that are undermining an already vulnerable culture of marriage and family. Even more disturbing is the fact that the first internet generations have not reached full maturity. So the upper limits of this impact have yet to be realized. I'll just share an illustration with you. I know of a pastor. I won't say who it is or the church, but he got a phone call one day from a family. And um, a seven-year-old boy had forced a five-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl to give him oral sex. And the parents were livid. And, but this pastor, with wisdom, responded, there's no way a seven-year-old boy would do that without somehow being, vic- being a victim of something as well. And so when he looked further into the story, what was the story? The seven-year-old boy was watching porn, watching oral sex, and he thought to get a five-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl to do it to him. Porn is fueling a generation of young men who view sex as a means to dominate women. I played uh, competitive hockey for a few years, and when I was in grade 10, so grade 10, you're 15, um, what goes on in a hockey dressing room in the conversation, it all comes from young men viewing pornography. Hearing 15-year-old boys saying, man, if I could get that girl alone, what I would do to her. That all comes from the porn that they're watching. So it's destructive to those who are in pornography, it's destructive to the individual, and it's destructive to society because it fuels a culture of rape. Not only that, porn is rewiring the brain. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Mary, Dr. Mary Ann Layden states, it is not surprising that many psychologists are calling porn the new crack cocaine. Jonathan Marin points out, the reason is that sustained porn use fires off neurotransmitters in the brain known as erotoxins, which create new, often permanent neutral pathways in the brain and begin to rewire brains of those consuming porn. So it's actually literally reshaping people's brains. Not only that, porn defiles our bodies. We know this from 1 Corinthians 6, 18-21. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 
whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were brought, bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I love the imagery that Paul uses here, right? He goes right back to the Old Testament with the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. God is dwelling in the Holy of Holies, right? One man can enter there once a year, and if he does it wrong, he's going to die, right? It's the most sacred place in the universe. And Paul uses that picture in regards to new covenant believers that our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit where the Holy of Holies dwells. And so to sin sexually would be the same as if you were an Israelite during the tabernacle period and entering the Holy of Holies with a prostitute and having sex. That's the kind of imagery that Paul's capturing there. That when you sin sexually, that's what you're doing. You're sinning against the place in which God dwells himself. In Roman pagan culture, people would go to the temples and do their sexual moral acts with a prostitute to worship their gods. Today, we have made our bedrooms and offices the temple by which we participate in pagan worship. And our people need to grasp that. And finally, porn destroys marriage, intimacy, and sex. And I think the evidence just speaks for itself. Dr. Mary Ann Layden again states, I have also seen in my clinical experience that pornography damages the sexual performance of the viewers. Pornography viewers tend to have problems with premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction. Having spent so much time in unnatural sex experiences with paper, celluloid, and cyberspace, they seem to find it difficult to have sex with a real human being. Pornography, this is key line, pornography is raising their expectation and demand for types and amounts of sexual experiences. At the same time, it is reducing their ability to experience sex. So pornography is raising their expectation and demand for types and amounts of sexual experiences. But at the same time, it's reducing their ability to even have normal sex. In 2002, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reported the following as the most salient factors present in divorce cases. 56% of divorces involve one party party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. We We get this. Porn destroys love. What porn enables people to do is it enables us to separate sex from love. It enables us to separate sex from love. Porn says sex is just physical, but God says sex is spiritual, emotional, and physical. It's the most intimate act two human beings can experience, and porn has the power to destroy that intimacy. Porn says sex is profane. God says sex is sacred. It destroys trust within a marriage. It will produce bitterness towards your wife. If you're viewing porn as a married man, you will become bitter towards your wife Because you will feel like she's not meeting your sexual desires, even though your sexual desires are perverted because of pornography. Jessica Neely, a former top Googled porn star, said this regarding men consuming porn. Porn is a trap that makes you resent your wife. My job was to make you hate your wife. The the biblical principle is simple, right? You become whatever you set your heart on. So if someone sets their heart on money, they become like money. What's money like? Money doesn't care about anyone, right? So if you love money, you become like money. You will put people to the side for the sake of getting money. You become callous. 
And it's the exact same thing when it comes to pornography. You will become what porn is. And porn is an industry that preys on broken people and it's a numbing, a numbing industry. People don't feel anything in that industry. As John Piper says, the soul tends to shrink to the size and quality of its pleasures. Dr. Tim Clinton, president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, says this. He believes the porn pandemic is destroying us. I don't think we've yet to begin to see the tidal wave of effects of what's going to happen in our relationships. So that's the bad news. Porn is pandemic. It's everywhere. I realize that's heavy information. And on top of that, it's extremely harmful. But we need to be aware of that. Parents need to be aware of that. So we need to create atmospheres for transparency and vulnerability. Um, We need to address this in our churches in that regard. So one of the things that needs to happen is this. Conversations need to start happening. That's really where it has to begin. We need to actually have the courage to address this issue in our church as a whole, in our families, in our marriages, um, which means you actually have to have knowledge on the issue, which requires that you study. Too many pastors really just have very little knowledge of it unless they're actually viewing it themselves. And so pastors, elders, church leaders, they actually have to equip themselves on how to address this issue. So conversations need to start happening. That's the first thing that needs to begin to take place for people, for churches, for families to begin to overcome pornography. Secondly, um, if you're in a position of leadership, and that can be whether you're a dad, a mom, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, whatever it is, a ministry leader, you need to lead by example. And what do I mean by that? Well, You need to take the necessary steps that you're serious about this. Getting filters for your technological devices, even if you don't struggle with pornography. Pornography is hunting for you. So even if you don't struggle with it, you need to get filters and devices. Now, if your people see that you take necessary precaution, then the young man struggling with porn in your church, won't have an excuse for why he hasn't taken the necessary measures. There was a young man, um, I say young man, I'm a young man, but he was two years younger than me, in Ottawa, and uh, he asked me to keep him accountable, and I said I would, but I said, do you have a filter on your computer? And he said, no. I'm like, well, you need to get one. I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem, but it helps. And he said, well, I don't want one. And I said, well, if you don't want one, then I'm not going to keep you accountable. And he was kind of taken back by that. And I said to him very clearly, if you don't show me that you really want to be pure and you're, not will- and you're willing to do anything it takes, then I don't want to help you because there are other guys who are willing. And, um, and so I think it is important for churches and specifically the leadership in churches to come out and say, listen, we might not be struggling with this, but we're going to put the necessary measures in place in our homes and even in our church offices to tell our people we don't want this to be a problem in our church. And so, young man, if you're struggling with it, you have no excuse. If I'm not looking at it and I have a filter, you better get a filter on your computer and on your phone. So lead by example. Secondly, or thirdly, we need to create atmospheres 
for transparency and vulnerability. Um, I don't want to, I hope you guys don't get this illustration wrong, but I think the church opt, ought to function like a hospital. Um, if anyone's ever been in the hospital for overnight, I have, you get dressed up in a hospital gown. And one thing about those gowns is they're not very, um, they don't cover you very well. And so you're walking around a hospital a little bit exposed. Um, but what's the hospital gown for? It's designed not for concealment, but easy access. Easy access. And the church ought to function in similar ways. We need to create an atmosphere where people know they can come and be exposed and yet still be loved and embraced. There needs to be a safe place, a safe process that's put in place in churches so that men and women can talk about these issues. In regards to um, pastors, fathers, and mothers, you need to lead by example in this. And what I mean by that is this. Your people in your church are not going to be willing to expose their sin if those in leadership don't. To be vulnerable, to be transparent about your weaknesses. Listen, to embrace your weaknesses and reveal your struggles speaks greater of the gospel than to hide your weaknesses and struggles. The gospel frees us from having to protect our reputations because the cross itself shows us we don't have a reputation to protect. So here's a question. Is confession something that is practiced in your church? Not just from members, but also from those in leadership. Let me give you an example of this. I've just been at uh, Grace Fellowship now for two months, and uh, we have prayer meetings every week. And one of the things I love about our prayer meetings is there's always time given to confession. And Paul, who is our lead pastor, and uh, Tim Challies, who he's no longer our associate, but he's still an elder at the church, um, when we pray and we have this time, I hear our leaders crying out, confessing their sins to God, asking for forgiveness. Now, it's not force, it's not, it's, it's natural, it's a part of who we are because the gospel has so informed them on how to live. And so by them confessing their sins as leaders in the church, it's incredible to see the rest of the congregation willing to humble themselves and bring their sin into the light. See, the gospel frees us to practice this in the life of the church. If we truly believe that every sin and every click on the internet is forgiven in Christ Jesus, it should, not, it should lead us to be able to bring it into the light. And so our churches need to live like that, need to function like that. Now, you can't create a program for this. This is something that has to become a part of who your church is, based coming that flows outside of the gospel, that comes out of the gospel. And so if your church doesn't practice confession, vulnerability, all those things, it's probably a good sign that either you or your church doesn't get the gospel. So we need to create environments where people can feel safe to allow themselves to be exposed, to wear their hospital gowns. Fourth, we need to address this issue from the pulpit. Um, we need to give full sermons and full sermon series to this issue. Now, hear me on this. I love expository preaching, and I believe it's the greatest means in the corporate gathering of the saints for their growth and holiness. But it is okay to take breaks and address specific issues that we need to deal with. 
bringing this up from the pulpit reveals the importance of the issue. Addressing pornography from the pulpit is declaring to your people that this is a major issue that we won't let go, that we won't let um, just flourish in our church. We're going to address it. So things that must be addressed from the pulpit are this. We need to preach the warnings of Scripture. Um, We live in a Christian context where we don't want to warn people. We live in a society that says that. But we need to actually warn people. There are warnings all throughout Scripture, and not just warnings for unbelievers. There are warnings for believers. So we need to warn them. Don't allow your belief in the security of the saved to keep you from taking the warnings in Scripture seriously. That's important. These warnings are meant to be the means to keep the child of God alert and examining his life. Not only that, we need to preach on the sacredness and beauty of sex. The world is telling our youth that Christianity is against sex and pleasure. And sometimes, to be honest, the church sounds that way because we're always reacting. But we need to teach that sex isn't bad and show our people how we actually cherish sex far more than the world does. God is for sex, and he delights in us delighting in sex. I love how Jonathan Maron puts it in his article, Hugh Hefner's Dirty Little Secret. We apparently, that is Christians, are the ones who are anti-sex because we elevate sex as an action of such significance that it should take place in a loving, committed context marriage, one that is incidentally also the best context which to raise children. We recognize that sex is an extraordinarily powerful human experience, one that we toy with or abuse at our peril. But the sexual revolutionaries insist that this is archaic and foolish. More sex, they say, more sex, all the time, with whomever you like. Someone should make these people take economics. Basic rule, if you commodify something, you cheapen it. We've put cash prices on intimate human experiences, and we've created an industry that amounts to nothing more than a trade in human flesh. So we need to actually create a theology for our churches that shows the beauty and sacredness of sex. Not only that, which I think is the most important here, we need to preach the glorious gospel of Christ. Your people are going to need to be reminded of a great Savior who not only has freed them from the punishment of sin, but also has the power to free them from the power of sin. Give them a glorious Jesus that is far more satisfying than the temporary pleasures of porn. As John Piper puts it, the only way to defeat defeat small pleasures is by striving after far more superior pleasures that are found only in God. There is far more satisfaction and joy in Christ than there is in pornography. Show your people that the gospel and pornography are on completely different ends. Luke Wilkerson says this, Consuming porn is the antithesis of the love seen in the, of the, love, sorry, yeah, is the, lo- of the love seen in the gospel. The face of the gospel says, this is my body given for you. Pornography says, this is your body taken by me. Proclaim the gospel and the demand the gospel has upon our lives in your churches. Also within preaching, equip and inform your people on how to fight back. I'm going to have Daniel come up and speak very shortly on this, but I just want to address um, one thing in particular. In, in, uh, yeah, one thing. Train parents. There is a major gap 
in this issue when it comes to parents. When we do our events, we want everyone to come, and usually what ends up happening is teenagers come, college and career students come, but parents aren't coming. Parents think that maybe if they just send their kids to these events, they don't have to talk to their kids about it. But parents need to be trained to talk to their children about porn. We need to prepare them, our kids, for when they will see it. This must be an ongoing conversation. And parents, it just seems that the majority of parents don't get it. They don't realize what is going on with the younger generations. The question isn't, how do I prevent my kids from seeing it? The question is, how do I prepare my kids for when they do see it? Because they're going to see it. The majority of kids now at recess are watching porn on their smartphones. And your seven-year-old daughter and your eight-year-old son will run into it at some point. And then finally, emphasize the one another commands that flow from the gospel. Holiness is impossible without the help and protection of others. We haven't just been united to Christ, but we've also been united to one another because of the gospel. And this is why we have the one another commands in scripture, like Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelief an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a duty not just to God, but to one another as well within our local churches. I'm just going to end with this scripture verse, which I think is the key to it all. And then Daniel will come up and just share for five minutes We know this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory or the beauty of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Awesome. All right, Daniel, come on up and... you just shared, but for giving your time to helping people get free. Um, I'm a pretty young pastor, and so it was a challenging moment when I was sitting in a Starbucks in Ottawa where I am a pastor. I'm not a pastor in the Starbucks, but I'm a pastor in Ottawa. (laughs) I'm sitting in the Starbucks, and a a young husband uh, confesses to me that they have for years been addicted to porn, and that led them into committing adultery on their young wife, not with one, not with two, but with three different people. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, just praying, God, how am I going to walk with this guy to freedom? Um, even before that, there, I was sitting in a, in a different coffee shop, and a young man uh, confessed to me that for uh, some time he's been struggling with gay pornography, and um, he's, he's entrapped in this. Um, also, around that same time, I had another young man confessed to me that he uh, has been struggling with porn for years now, and that he had done some, um, the, um, some uh, he had sexually abused a few different girls. So I'm sitting there in each of those situations, oh my goodness, this is, this is really overwhelming. How do I walk with these guys to freedom? And that's what I'm going to take the next four and a half minutes to share with you the six steps that I did to help them. So the first is nothing that I did. It's something that um, Jesus did, and it's called the gospel. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, and that's actually true that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, not simply to make sick people healthy, but to make the dead alive. 
And there is that power in the gospel. It brings us life and it brings us freedom. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so that's the first thing I share with them. When they come to me and they share this stuff, I say, you've come to me for behavior modification, but what we're going to spend the next year going through is life transformation. And so we start with the gospel, we end with the gospel, and the whole thing is about the gospel. Now, how do we, how do we get into that? Well, the, the second thing is that we practice this, the spiritual discipline of confession. Uh, this is not something here a lot of evangelicals talk about. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, it tends to be reading the Bible, praying, that kind of thing. But confession is key. Uh, James chapter 5 talks about confessing your sin one to another. Now, very specifically, when I'm dealing with someone with, a, with an intense issue like this, I call on them not simply to just confess their sin to anyone everywhere, but to have a specific person they confess to. That to borrow the Catholics' use of the word, I, I'd call their confessor. The reason for this is that I've observed in the various young people that I have walked with, that if, uh, and even in my own life, um, whatever issue it is, that if we confess our sin to different people, then no one knows how bad it really is. So you need them to be confessing to one specific person so that that person is able to truly walk with them. And when they begin confessing uh, consistently like this, you're not going to immediately see a change in their behavior in terms of the frequency of their falling, but you will see a change in the time that it takes for them to have fallen and come back up and, and walking with God. John Newfield was talking about how, how the sheep get out of the mud, how they stand up. So when someone starts confessing, um, and you want them to, con- like I, I tell these guys, I, like th- the moment you realize you've sinned, you're texting me. The moment you realize. Like, do not wait till the next day. They usually wait till the next day at first. No, right, when they confess, okay, thank you for confessing. I want you to text me right away. Because the, the faster they confess to you, the quicker they get back up, they receive the goodness of God again, and they, they continue living. And as they start getting up quicker, um, sin begins to lose its hold. The third thing is accountability. Confession is initiated by the person who has sinned. Accountability is initiated by you or by me. It's the person walking with them. And so accountability isn't just saying, hey, did you look at porn this week? But texting them or when you meet up in person, asking them, are you in the Bible? Are you reading the Bible daily? Are you, and you, you ask them about their spiritual disciplines because you want to focus on that stuff more than just whether or not they've looked at sin, uh, sinful stuff, because um, that's where they're going to get the strength to actually be victorious. Be specific to and ask them the awkward questions. And sometimes it is really awkward questions you got to ask. Okay, the fourth thing is to be praying for them. Um, in Romans chapter 16, Paul is praying. It's one of those doxologies. He's praying for the people. He's writing to the Romans. And he says, uh, like, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to the gospel. And the, the, the fight to be free of porn is one of the, the biggest fights that the person you're walking with or maybe yourself will ever engage in your entire life. And so you need, we need sp- supernatural divine strength, and it's through the gospel. And Paul's praying for it, and we need to pray for it. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're living in that strength. Be praying for one another. Uh, fifth is um, amputation. Um, we, uh, this comes from Matthew 5. Jesus said, if your right eye, your left eye, whatever part of your body causes you to sin, cut it off. He is speaking metaphorically. And uh, so the way that we practice this is by getting a filter on your computer or in the case of one of my friends, getting rid of your computer. Uh, the executive director of our organization, my brother Josh, when he, he's my actual brother. He's not just like my spiritual brother. Um, he, when he was getting free from porn and he realized his smartphone, no matter how much filters he had, was uh, an avenue to sin, he got rid of his smartphone. He needed that phone for work, but he did what he had to do to get rid of it. Um, There's people who, because of their job, they're just in a place of vulnerability. I tell them, quit your job. Uh, Tim Challies recently at a Strength of Fight event said, is your love for your porn, uh, do you love porn enough to go to hell for it? 
and um and yeah that's do you like let's just that, let that sink in for a moment <laughs> that's big okay it's worth quitting your job over seriously and then number six is that we need to be renewing our mind based on romans 12 um, as well as um, from Corinthians, what, what Peter said about beholding Jesus. Romans 12 speaks about in view of the mercies of God, in view of the gospel, uh, we're to offer bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, so that, that, that includes becoming free from porn and sexual addiction. And, then, and it speaks then of renewing our mind. And the best analogy I can give you for that is a few years ago, I was walking down the famous Spark Street in Ottawa. It's a pedestrian street. I was walking this way. It seemed like everyone else was walking that way. The sun was setting. I'm not an artsy guy. I don't care much about sunsets. But this was a majestic sunset. And it was so majestic, I just was, I couldn't help myself. So I started walking, to all these people walking away from the sun into the darkness. Like, hey, turn around. Hey, turn around. Hey, hey, turn around. And, and like businessmen with briefcases, young couples holding hands. And some of them would look at me like, weirdo, and keep walking. But others would, would turn curiously and see the sunset. And, they would, <gasps> and all of a sudden, they, would, they, like, they start walking toward it as well. And that truly is what we need to be doing in renewing our mind. So often when we want to get free from porn, and the guys who come to me, like, I've tried to fight this for so long. They're walking into the darkness, and they're, like, they're studying the darkness. They're thinking about the dark darkness. They're promising themselves they'll turn away from the darkness. But the darkness pulls them in. I'm even a bit concerned when we do talks like this that there's some people here who may have been exposed to porn already and maybe you're walking in freedom and just even hearing the darkness is something about it that it like, wants to reach out its tentacles to you and, and pull your mind back into it. And so that's why I want to finish your talk, not just talking about the darkness of porn, but the life and the freedom and the joy that we have as we savor the goodness of God and walk in the freedom he made us for. And for that, we turn our eyes not about the dark, we turn our eyes to Jesus we turn our eyes to the gospel, that he who knew no sin, became, he who knew no porn, became porn, that we might become the righteousness of God. He's taken it all in his own flesh. He's taken it all, the porn, the sexual abuse, the gay addiction, all that stuff. And so a year and a half later, the, the young man who had done sexual abuse, he, um, he went to the police, uh, he's, he's gone to them, and he's walking in purity today. Uh, the, the gentleman, all three of those guys, the marriage is restored uh, the, the gentleman who was struggling with gay pornography is walking in purity and in chastity. It's incredible. And they're doing it not just because they're hating the darkness, but because they've been captivated by, by the majesty of something so much more beautiful and excellent than the greatest sunset. And the way that we do that with these guys, the, the majority, I meet up with them each one-on-one -on -one for an hour each week. And the majority of that time, yeah, we do the confession, we do the accountability, and we have time of prayer. The majority of that hour is studying the Bible. And for the guys, I start off with 2 Timothy because it's such a powerful book on what it means to be a man. And um, so we study the Bible for almost an hour every week. And then besides that, I'm ensuring you guys need to be reading the Bible chapter by chapter through, throughout the week, every day. Um, that is uh, helping them to behold Jesus and to savor him and to, to truly repent away from the darkness and walk in the glorious freedom of God. So I think we are done. Yeah, so um, we, uh, we only got about four minutes.